Today I welcome Kai Vasher, Principal at the British School of Muscat in Oman. In this episode, I discuss the importance of leaders on social media, heads as politicians, using the fleas in a jar metaphor to adopt a growth mindset, and training teachers in-house as part of an internship program. If you weren't in education and you weren't doing the job you're doing, what sector would you be in and what job would you do? I think I've been on a mission to change the world for most of my life. So I think I'd probably have to be a politician. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. But I would be a really good politician, I'm sure. I'd be authentic and uh, yeah, trustworthy and you know, all the things that politicians should be. You answer a question with an answer. Um, as opposed to with a question. Yeah, I would, I, I would feel that responsibility to answer a question with, with a compelling answer and a genuine answer, even if it made me look stupid or vulnerable, or maybe even if I didn't know the answer. So, yeah. I mean, some would argue that being uh, a principal or a head is kind of akin to being a politician. I mean, you have to manage so many different communities, so many different outlooks, you know, all these different people and they're all their different needs and it's not easy to align them all so if you really cut your teeth do you think any head or principal could go and be a a politician i think it would be good grounding for being a politician yeah because as you say you've got to manage multiple stakeholders which politicians need to do but i think a school community whether you talk about students the staff the parents the governors probably have the ability to hold the principal more to account than maybe a, a typical politician. It's quite, you know, you can't sort of escape from your, your community off to Westminster on a regular basis. You can be held accountable very effectively by your school community. And, and perhaps that's, that would improve our political system in the UK if we could find a way of holding our, our politicians uh, more to account. But the ability to speak, to lead with vision, to listen, very carefully to a wide range of opinions and then make a decision. There's some good grounding there. So I'm not going anywhere near retirement yet. So who knows? One day, one day the, the world of politics might open up for me. But yeah, it's always something I've been very attracted to if I hadn't been in education. And if you track your career and, you know, and obviously all your kind of leadership roles you have in other associations where you chair different things, you can see that you have a natural kind of draw to being involved and actually connecting communities but sharing your voice and we're going to talk about some of the things that you've done at the BSM and things that you're passionate about today. No that's right and then I guess from a fairly early age I, I was one of these people who looks around the world that you're in and I thought well that's not right that's not that right that's not right and I wanted to do something about that and I was I have to say, very influenced by the punk and new wave movement of the late 70s, early 80s, where you did get a lot of of angry but energetic young people who were getting up and doing things and being creative and trying to make a positive difference. And I think that belief that if you see that something's not right or not quite right, you can actually do something about it yourself. You don't need to wait for other people to do something for you. And that spirit of belief and the ability to change the world and change things and to change things, that made a big impression on me as a teenager. And I still listen to The Clash and Paul Weller and Stiff Little Fingers and people like that, because there is so much energy and creativity in that music and so much 
originality that I still find a lot of a lot of meaning and value in it, you know, many years later. I mean, talking about having your voice and standing out and standing up, I actually wanted to kick off and, and briefly talk about the power of social media and the importance of school leaders being seen, active, authentic across, you know, particularly, I mean, there's Twitter, there's LinkedIn, there's others that has pop into. Do you remember when you started to see the value and opportunity to share your story on social media? Do I remember? When I was, yes, I do. I was, I was uh, very much influenced by you, Simon, <laughs> because because uh, you, I think, continued to make the case that you know social media provides a wonderful opportunity every day to tell the stories that are going on in your school and wherever your school is in the world and whatever's going on in that school. You know, where there are young people learning then there are always going to be really interesting and compelling stories which the school community and the wider world uh, will want to hear about and engage with. So I think schools are very positive, energetic, creative places. Della William talks about in his very first sort of influential publication, The Black Box. You don't, as a head teacher, you don't as a parent, it's quite hard to understand and find out what's going on in the classroom. You know, the, the children go home from school and the parent asks them, uh, how is your school today? How is school today? No, it's okay. When they're younger, they might be a bit more creative and expressive about what they say. So I think to open up the black box of the school classroom and open up the school and what's going on there, I think you know, parents are really fascinated to know what's going on and other teachers in the school are fascinated to know what's going on. And so I think you know, social media provides a really easy bit for getting those stories out there, getting those images out there, on a regular basis. So we put a lot of energy and time in, into doing that over the last seven or eight years. And we're continuing to do that as the, the different platforms emerge. You know, we start off with Facebook. We're now looking at Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram. I mean, Instagram's a big thing at the moment, especially with our parents. So, you know, I think it's, it's a wonderful opportunity to share the fantastic positive things that are going on in any school every day. Has it sort of transformed or changed your own daily schedule as a school leader? I think a lot of the barriers that come in when people sort of talk about every school should be sharing their story and you need to give it in the hands of the teachers and the leaders is that, well, I should be doing something else. Is it just a myth that it takes a lot of time? And is it more people kind of scared of getting involved? And how did you adapt your, your own schedule just to make sure it, it fitted in and it didn't become a burden? Uh, yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. I think it, it really helps. And not every school is fortunate to have a full-time communications manager. Once we appointed a marketing and communications manager who was also a parent and could look at what was going on in the school through the eyes of a, a sort of typical parent, that was a big shift. But we don't rely on our marketing and communication manager to do all our social media work. I mean, she will help create a strategy and she'll help myself and colleagues with that. But yeah, I guess maybe I've become a social media addict, but I'm, I'm not sitting at my desk all day on social media. I start the day, I probably spend five or 10 minutes looking what's going on in the world. Because it, it isn't just about creating content, it's also about looking what's going on there. And one of the ways I keep in touch with what's going on across the rest of the country here, what's going on across the Middle East, what's going across the world is through social media. And it's fascinating to see you know, what schools are doing on a daily basis. I mean, you get a window into as many schools as you want. So I think it's really useful to, you know, keep your head above the parapet at the start of the school day. So see what's going on, maybe post a few things, 
share something you're particularly proud of that maybe some of your teachers have been posting in the last 24 hours. It's a nice thing to reflect on maybe towards the end of the day, whether that's four, five, six, seven, whenever, whenever that might be. It's quite a nice reflective exercise. Again, see what your teachers have been posting, see what the schools are posting. So I think it, it helps you keep in touch with what's going on in your own school. It helps you, you know, project the messages you want to share with your school community. But it also keeps you in touch with what's going on in you know, the very fast, dynamic world of education. So I don't see it as a burden. I think it's a, it's a really interesting part of you know, so keeping in touch with what's going on in your own school and sharing that, but also finding out what's going on in the rest of the education world. You kind of touched on there, you know, and part of my reason for being and doing what I do here is inspiring schools to share their story. You know, it's, it's always been core and central to everything because every school is different. And it's great to see schools like you, leaders like you, actually role modeling it because this is happening and this has happened around the world. This is what our kids are used to. This is what our parents are used to. So it's only right that schools do get involved um, because it's, it's just an upside. You can hide behind the negatives all the time. Because there's negatives in everything you do. You know, if I go and get my car, I can, I can find 10 reasons why I shouldn't go and drive to my office. It's understanding the true risk of it. And actually, there's a bigger upside. And that's that community positivity and engagement that you get because your story with a large school in the beautiful place you are just gets that global platform that you cannot get in any other, in any other way. That's right. And I think, again, you're coming back to the, uh, we were talking about the world of politics earlier. And you hear a lot in the world of politics. One of the reasons I'm interested in politics is is how communication works. And I remember reading uh, Peter Mandelson's book, The Third Man, about how the whole communication strategy in the the Labour Party was transformed from this early to mid-80s when it was an absolute disaster to the election success of 97 and beyond. But how so much of that transformation was around communication and how you manage the message and so on. And they, and they talk about, you know, the narrative and who's controlling the narrative, who's influencing the narrative in politics. One of the things that, as a principal or school leader, engaging with social media enables you to influence the narrative about what's going on in your school. So when I arrived here 10 years ago, the narrative around the community tended to be very negative because... As human beings, we are attracted to negative stories. Just have a look at the media. Of course it is. It's, it, everyone's competing for time, right? So when I arrived here and I, I was talking to governors and I was listening to parents and so on, I heard so many negative stories. And there were wonderful things going on in the school, but those weren't being pushed out into the wider community or even around the community. And so by engaging with social media, you have a real opportunity to influence the positive narrative, the positive stories of what's going on in your school. And you'll still get the negative stories going around, but it enables you to provide more balance to those stories. And, you know, we should all be proud of what's going on in our schools, and I'm sure we are all proud of what's going on in our schools. And social media in an education context gives us a wonderful avenue and opportunity to share those positive successful stories that are going on in our schools it's a great kind of archive it's a digital archive of things you know you'll look back in five years time and go wow because you forget what happens you know and actually having the digital record of it is great 
I want to move on. Prior to the pandemic, your school was using an employment strategy whereby you ran an internship program for local Omanis to work as teaching assistants at the school. The view was for some of these individuals to then to be taken on as permanent employees. How did this come about? Well, it came about because my wonderful HR director at the time, Salma, uh, she's now down in New Zealand, but she came up with this idea that you know, she was embracing the idea of how do we grow professionals to work in our school to help grow our students. And there is a challenge in Amman, as there is in um, many countries around the region. There's very high youth unemployment. And I think every year, somewhere between maybe 30 to 50,000 graduates come onto the job market in this part of the, the world. And there are not enough jobs for the number of graduates coming onto the job market every summer. You know, part of our contribution to how can we give a number of Amanis an opportunity to experience what it might be like to work in an international school. Part of our responding to that issue in the country that we're in, which is a, quite a substantial issue. And it was also an opportunity for us to bring people into school, give them that experience and see how they responded to that experience. And then with the intention that then if we had vacancies, we could be recruiting some of our staff from this pool of internships. So it was the brainchild of uh, my HR director, Salma, who was here a few years ago. What opportunities did this offer your community for both students and staff? So what happens, we've been operating this programme now for probably three or four years. So every term, we run an internship programme. So we, we advertise out to the wider community. And we normally uh, take on maybe six to eight interns. They come and work at the school for four weeks. And uh, they have a programme of training. So they get a little bit of training to be, in most cases, a teaching assistant. But we're, we are extending this to other areas now. Initially, it was for teaching assistants, so they get some training in being a teaching assistant and what that role looks like and how to start to operate that school. So for those people involved in the programme, it gives them some initial training in an international school. And for our students, it gives them an opportunity to work with a wider range of people from the local community. How successful was this strategy and has it generated the next generation of teachers? From these internship programmes, we've recruited six permanent teaching assistants and five of those teaching assistants are still with us. So I think that's quite a positive indicator of success. And a number of those five who are with us have then gone on for further training within the school to be higher level teaching assistants. And then the next step would be teacher training. But we've, we've not got to that point yet. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. You mentioned that you're exploring using this model to for other areas of the school, not just going through teaching assistants and teachers. Should all schools look to adopt this kind of internship model to help to drive, again, is this local community driven more than getting people from other parts of the country or other parts of the world to take advantage? A big part of this is what can we offer back to our local community? And I guess like a lot of international schools, you know, we are guests here in Oman. And I think we have a responsibility 
to contribute to you know some of the wider issues that the country is trying to deal with. So you know, should other schools do this sort of thing? Well, it, it isn't for me to say what other should schools should do. But my own belief is that you know our mission here is to grow students who are best for the world. And I think we have a responsibility clearly to do that, to achieve that mission day in, day out. I think we also have a responsibility to grow the team of employees who could work in our school and in other schools to help grow young people who are best for the world. So I think that every school should be thinking, how do they contribute to growing the teaching workforce, the teaching assistant workforce? What are ways in which they can do that? Because that will benefit their own school, but it will also benefit the wider education community. I think it's a brilliant initiative. I mean, particularly when we go back couple of years to the start of the pandemic where teacher recruitment completely was affected. And I'm sure it was affected in Oman too, with so many travel bans in place, and they're still in place to this day. I mean, how did you overcome this beyond the internship? And is there a light at the end of the tunnel for doing more wider kind of international teacher recruitment? I do believe that we have responsibility to grow the workforce as well as to grow our students. I think that the two are interlinked. We have been, for five years now, developing programmes to grow our own teachers. I think in the last five years, we've grown nearly 20 of our own teachers in situ here in in Oman. And that has helped create a talent pipeline. So when we're looking to recruit a teacher, for the last five years, we've been able to say, well, actually, we've got two trainees who will be ready by next September. They could fill that role and they could fill that role. So it's certainly helped us. Yeah, it's not been the complete solution to teacher recruitment, but it has contributed to solving some of our recruitment challenges. The BSO inspection framework enables you to do NQT induction. That's a big help. And having that, that that's where we, were, where we started, really. And then from that, we were able to extend our, our teachers' training capability. I think what's going to be really interesting sort of over the next year or so is how the IQTS might create more opportunities for even more international schools to grow their own and develop their own teachers. You write many articles, you have a good blog, you're very active on social media around thought leadership within your community. And one of these really stood out to me, and it was a fleas in a jar and student potential. Could you give us a brief explanation of this metaphor? The fleas in the jar metaphor. Yes. So I mean, some would say it's an experiment. Uh, Some would challenge whether it's an actual science experiment or not. So I think it's best to think of it as a metaphor. So simply, the metaphor goes like this. Um, If you put a flea or some fleas in a jar and put the lid on, the fleas will go crazy and jump around for a few days. The fleas then learn the boundaries created by the lid of the jar. So then after a few days, when you take the lid off the jar, the fleas will not jump around again. They won't try to escape the jar. They become conditioned by their environment. And clearly, I think the analogy with or the comparison with education here is that perhaps a traditional education environment can be limiting. And schools, if they're not careful, you know, we can put a limit on the aspiration and the expectations of our students. And so we're trying to challenge that. In what ways might educators accidentally limit students with a metaphorical lid? 
language language is important so up until fairly recently before we got involved in the high performance learning work we use the word ability a lot and i think that's fairly common in many schools around the world and so that language can be very influential and powerful in limiting our own expectations and students' expectations of themselves. So if you talk about bright children and less able children, we can use that language in schools. And then students hear that as well and they feel that. And then very quickly, you've gone from a teacher saying they're less able to that student saying, I'm no good at maths. We and they have then put a limit on their expectation, aspiration for what they might achieve in maths. And I've seen that across my children at, at different stages, different schools, you know, that and it is it's all language to see someone's spark completely be put out, you know, within within a year of moving between different year groups was astonishing. And actually, it showed the problem we've got with education anyway. You know, having inspiring teachers, you can't guarantee you're going to get it. You might love a subject one year, the next year, because of who's in front of you, you may not get it. You've said you'd like to transform the educational landscape so that high-performance learning, HPL, becomes the norm for children. What is HPL and the growth mindset, and why embed this in a school? Well, what is HPL? HPL, high-performance learning, the way I, I look at it is it's a, really, it's a way of changing the educational paradigm in a school and across a school community. It's a way of taking the lid off the jar and never having the lid on there in the first place. So that's one way of, of summing up. And it starts off with a change in mindset. And that's perhaps the, the most challenging piece initially, is that you're looking to change the mindset of all your colleagues, of your students, and your school community. Change that mindset from one where they might think that ability is fixed, there might be limits on achievement, to a paradigm, to an expectation, where all staff are believing that all children can achieve. That's a substantial shift in mindset. And yes, it's helped by Carol Dweck's work on growth mindset and the learning sciences, which are increasingly telling us there isn't a limit to human achievement. And we don't know what those limits are. So we shouldn't be setting limits there. So in the language we use and the systems and the processes we have in place, we need to make sure that those systems and how we operate reflect that philosophy and that mindset. How do we work towards achieving this enormous ambition and how do we instill a growth mindset into pupils? Because it's not a normal educational philosophy. We need to go back to the word education. And I'm not a scholar of Latin, but my research tells me that education is drawn from two Latin roots. One is educare which means to mould or to train students, or do you like to teach them, which is obviously is clearly important. We need to teach them skills, we need to teach them knowledge and so on. But the second route is educere. And educere, apparently, means to draw out. And so for me, education is about both these things. And I think it is our responsibility to draw out the gifts and the talents that every child has. And I think we need to move from a world where we have schools which might have gifted and talented programmes for a small minority of students to a mindset where we believe that every child has gifts and talents that we can draw out. 
So for me, this is actually part of the work a lot of schools are doing now on diversity, equity, and inclusion. HPL actually speaks to an inclusion agenda because we are saying every child can achieve, can succeed in education if we look at and draw out their talents and their gifts. That change in mindset, we need to open up that philosophy and, and share that philosophy with our students, with our colleagues and with our parents. That's the first, that's the first step. And then what we need to do is then align all our systems, all our processes, our way of teacher learning, so is aligned with that philosophy. So we need to walk the talk. So that may sound relatively straightforward, but that's a long-term pedagogical journey. And it's a very exciting journey. And we've been on that journey already for four years. But I think we can make substantial changes in education like this. If you look back at the last 20 years, you know, the work that's been done on assessment for learning, information technology, we can now teach children anywhere in the world at any time. The, the impact of the learning science, evidence-informed practice, yeah, there are substantial changes when we look back and, and stand back from education that have happened. And I think this shift in education paradigm, where we believe that all children can achieve, is another improvement that we can all make. But it's not going to happen sort of like a, a silver bullet. It happens one conversation at a time, one lesson at a time, one day at a time. Um, but it, it is starting to happen in schools in the UK and across the world, but it will be a slow process. It's a really important change in how we think and how we operate in schools. Not just a school problem to tackle, I feel. I feel this is a, an issue embedded into society as a whole. And you mentioned the different stakeholders. Yes, you're, this, you know, our role as parents and adults is to steward these young men and women to ensure that they do have the best opportunity. So when they become adults themselves and, and go into this world that they are capable of having and maintaining a growth mindset. What advice do you have for educational leaders or even parents trying to adopt this growth mindset to improve the opportunities open to the next generation? I think it's first of all worth looking at some of the science that's increasingly out there, some of the work that's going on in research, learning science. I mean, there's a you know, really interesting study from 2006 on the impact of the knowledge on taxi drivers in London, you know, when the taxi drivers, the ones who drive the black cabs have to pass the knowledge test, then when they, they are learning for that test and learning the geography of London, the impact that has on the growth of the brain is absolutely fascinating. So there's some really interesting science out there. So if you want to be convinced that this isn't like another educational fad, that there's actually science behind this. I mean, what I've been able to see, there is substantial amount of science behind growth mindset theory. So it might be worth, if you're sceptical, engaging with some of that research. And then if you accept that research, then I think it does challenge how you might think about education, as I've been describing. And if we do believe that we can grow creative intelligence, we can grow all sorts of intelligence, like we can grow muscles when we go down the gym, then how do we then translate that research and that philosophy into the practice that we do in our classrooms as educators and how we talk to our children at home? I do find it painful when I'm out about and I, and I hear some of the conversations that some parents sometimes have with some of their children. You, you can't do that. It's not going to earn you enough money. You can't do that. You're not creative. 
Yeah, you can't do that. You're rubbish at math. These sorts of comments. And they're not always as strong as that. So I think we have to be very careful. I think Sir Ken Robinson once said, we need to, if we're going to trample on our children's dreams, we need to trample very gently on their dreams. And maybe we shouldn't trample on their dreams at all. How we talk to our children, uh, and I'm a parent as well as an educator, and, and I've been guilty of language and conversation with my children, which have been limiting at times. So we can all be guilty of that. One of the ways of thinking about this is there's this phrase, lawnmower parents. You've probably heard of helicopter parent. And I do believe that we shouldn't be as parents lawnmower parents. So lawnmower parents means preparing the path for the child. You, know, you will be an engineer. You will be a mathematician. You will be a scientist. That's a lawnmower parent. The, the opposite of, of the lawnmower parent is the gardener who is growing the child for the path on whatever path that might be. And the language we use with our children as parents is really important in how we grow the children for the path and not prepare the path for the child. What a great way to finish the podcast, Kai. Thanks ever so much for taking the time. As ever, it's been wonderful chatting to you about the future of education, your ideas and what you're doing and how much change that you've driven in Oman, but also within the British School of Muscat. So thanks ever so much. Well, thank you, Simon, and thank you for inviting me on the show. Keep doing the wonderful work that you're doing, uh, supporting schools, share what they do so well. It's a, it's a real inspiration to see how you help and support schools right across the world, share their stories and, and share you know, the quality that's going on there. So thank you for the help you've given me. I think on behalf of the school community, thank you for, for working with us in the way that you do. It's a real pleasure and inspiration to work with you. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.